As always, we are so thrilled to be able to gather on the first day of the week to offer our heartfelt worship unto God and to do so in a way, of course, that we are promised by the nature of His Word in John 4, 24, that He will accept and be pleased with that worship when we offer it in truth and in spirit. We have sung these marvelous songs and we've prayed together. And now we arrive at a moment at a time for the next little bit in which we'll reflect on some aspects of the Word of God. Christian marriage. That's the title I've given to the lesson this morning. I hope that we'll each be motivated, maybe with an incentive like never before, to appreciate some of the things the Bible has to say about that grand and beautiful topic. But as we do that, to be motivated to think of it in a very practical way to be sure. The introductory slide is going to be the one that's next. And I'm going to begin the lesson like this. I hope to give you an impression of the direction, the movement that I'd like for us to take as we proceed through the lesson this morning. In a very real way, marriage is misunderstood. Now, I understand that there are thousands and thousands of marriages that take place in our land every single year. And so you might argue, well, how is there so much misunderstanding? But there's the misunderstanding from the following observations. Of course, you and I know there are many who would wish to, quote, redefine marriage in our day, and that's nonsense of the highest order. But not only that, even from the perspective and the understanding attached to the basic matter of marriages taking place, look at this next thought, if you would. There are many, many people who seemingly think that Marriage between a couple of non-Christians, that is, a non-Christian man and a non-Christian woman, is basically the same as the marriage between a Christian man and a Christian woman. Again, they both appear before some kind of official. They both get a marriage license. They both found a home in the, in the days after that. So isn't it basically the same? And the answer is no, it is not the same. And that's the idea of the lesson this morning. What is so special, so honored, so cherished about the marriage between a Christian man and a Christian woman? And so as we close that slide, I'd like to highlight in just a moment four things that are different about it. But before we launch into a discussion of them, let's devote an initial set of moments to reflecting and thinking a little bit about the basis of marriage itself and why that foundation leads us to note the differences. It all begins like this. There are some foundational concepts, precepts if you please, that must be remembered and understood and applied. And as this relates to marriage, these points will again be the foundation for all that's going to follow it. First, marriage is God's work. It is His idea it is God's initiative. It is God's development. The human family didn't invent marriage. The human family didn't come up with some particular concerning it that we think this is a good idea. It was from the very outset that which belongs to God. Isn't it true in Genesis 2 verses 18 and following? You remember the scene so well. Days of creation had come and on this day, it was day number 6, God created the various land-dwelling animals. And yet we also remember that God brought those animals before Adam and said, Name them, and Adam did name them. But amongst all of that which was presented to him, there was no helper found suitable for Adam. 
God brought a deep sleep upon Adam and performed the first surgery, removing a rib from his side, and from that rib he fashioned a woman, and he brought that woman to the man. And then in verses 23 and 24 of Genesis chapter 2, Adam first comments and says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then this verse concludes it. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. You'll notice again, this whole business of marriage was God's idea. The nerve of men and women today thinking that they can redefine marriage. God has the patent on it. He has the copyright. He has all regulations concerning it. And may I then be quick to say that any attempted redefinition is stealing from Him because it's His idea. Those individuals today who would wish to redefine it in such a way as to permit, for instance, same-sex unions, God has already defined it. You're treading on God's territory, trampling on His initiative when you attempt to do this. Not only that, marriage belongs to God. It's not that He just established it. It belongs to Him. Look at some of these thoughts with me if you would. To say that it belongs to Him means He has full right to legislate concerning it. Who has the right to marry? And who has the right to divorce? Only God can specify this. Now I realize the courts of our land and otherwise may attempt to make laws and legislate, but again, when God has so created it, He has the absolute right in every way to dictate it. For the most part, you and I understand that in other realms of life, don't we? If a particular scientist or other person invents something, that person has the right relative to that entity that he or she has invented. God invented marriage. He has exclusive right to determine it, to dictate it, and to legislate all matters concerning it. What about the third idea? You and I have been so accustomed, even as we witness a marriage ceremony take place. There's a man and a woman. There's an official, maybe a preacher, maybe a justice of the peace. And this official sometimes says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And by the power vested in me, you may kiss your bride. I might suggest, I think we understand the latitude of that language. But there's one point that you and I, as believers in the Word of God, must never allow to fall from us. It's God that joins. It's not that marriage certificate that's been received from the courthouse. It's not that official who's made that proclamation. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 19, 6, "...what therefore God hath joined together." Let not man put asunder question, then Jesus who joined them, He said God did." And therefore, might you and I just appreciate that fact because it's very meaningful. God does the joining. Perhaps one final thing. Would you notice the language? That is to say, what that word join means. It literally means to yoke together. It means to pair together. These two, by decree of God, have been yoked together for life. That's the thrust. That's the idea behind it. There's a permanence. That is to say, there is a continuation, and the vow that's made at marriage is thus intended to be fully consistent with the Bible. 
till death do us part. Is that the way each of you make promises and vows? And the answer, of course, is yes. No wonder that being said, one final thought. Each one of those individuals is submissive unto God. The man is and the woman is. Now in James 4 verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves to God. And if so, inasmuch as Christians, that would be one tremendous line of separation between a Christian marriage and a non-Christian one. These two, in addition to, of course, submitting themselves properly to one another according to the Bible, they first and foremost have submitted themselves individually to God. And that will make a distinction about how they live their life, how they enter that marriage, and how they will, of course, treat the features that they shall face. With those things as foundation, let's look at four specific applications. What specific things then would make a distinguishing characteristic to a Christian marriage as opposed to a non-Christian one? The first one is this. Freedom. Now maybe that very word is a bit confusing. What do you mean by that? Let me see if I can explain what, what I mean by it and see again if the Word of God doesn't highlight this truth. Freedom is one distinguishing matter. You and I live in a time, and I suppose it's ever been so, people in many cases don't like rules. They want to live the way they want to live. And that's especially true when it comes to marriage. I want to be able, many would say, to contract a marriage, but if it comes to the point I don't like it, I want to be able to get out of it and contract another one. God says you can't do that. Now again, many would say, but that's freedom. I don't like God telling me that I cannot get out of this one and contract another one. I don't like Him dictating this. And so many would say, I want the freedom that comes with having anything concerning marriage when I want it on the terms I want it. The problem is you and I know very well what kind of behavior comes from this. Nations have exhibited it. Families have exhibited it. Individuals have exhibited it. Whenever a person lives without rules, it's anarchy. It's chaos. When everybody does what they all think is right... Nobody can have any peace because it's absolute chaos. You know what happened to ancient Israel? When every man did what was right in his own eyes, it was a disaster. When each one submitted under the reality of the things of God being bound in that way, suddenly everything was right. I might say it another way. Fear. When everybody does what they want to do, Everybody has to live with an element of fear. What's he going to do? What's she going to do? But yet, if one is appreciative of those bounds dictated by God and lives within those confines, then the freedom that comes from that removes all the fear and it removes all the ambiguity and it allows a harmony and a peacefulness which truly is rich indeed. That's what I mean by this aspect of freedom. We might even develop it a little bit further. I mentioned a moment ago that there's this general tone in society. I don't want any rules. And you and I know well, again, that just leads to disaster. When there are no rules, there's nothing but fear and chaos. Look, for instance, at Romans 7, verse number 2. 
And think of that in light of the thing that many would wish today. As I mentioned earlier, some would wish, I want to enter marriage when I want to, but I want to get out of it when I want to, and I want to be able to contract another one when I want to. God again says, you cannot do that and be pleasing unto me. Some would say, but I have fallen out of love with her. I no longer feel satisfied in this marriage. May I say, the whole attitude, the perspective has taken a wrong turn. Look with me at Romans 7, verse number 2, and let's let God identify a boundary. That is to say, a particular limitation concerning marriage, and so long as these two appreciate that, it will go a long way toward helping to see the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian marriage. As Paul identified this in Romans 7 verse 2, he commented, A woman that hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. But if he be dead, she is free to be married to another. You noticed how the beginning part of that verse was worded. If you're married, you're bound by the law as long as he lives. Now you'll notice there's a boundary. I can't just put away my husband or my wife just because she doesn't look pretty enough in the morning anymore. Just because she doesn't cook the things I like to eat. Just because she in some other way doesn't do things the way I would prefer her to do it. That's not grounds for divorce. There's a boundary been laid up before us here and as you and I appreciate it, it attaches to this permanence in marriage. Notice again the difference. When two non-Christians are married, maybe he or she begins to feel worried. Is, he, is my spouse going to divorce me? Two Christian people won't have to worry about that. For each one of them will be bound to the law of God first and foremost, and that will not be an issue. Not only that, look at the freedom that this then creates. In Matthew 5, verse 28, In the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, on that occasion speaking, You've heard it's been said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Fair enough. He quotes from the Ten Commandments and highlights, You understand you've got to be true to your spouse. But the Lord went even a step further. He said, If a man looks on a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. And therefore, one more time, a Christian man, a Christian husband is going to take very seriously even the attempt to guard the thinkings and the characteristics of his mind. He's not going to allow his mind to wander on the behavior of some woman other than his wife. Because Jesus said if you do that, you're committing adultery in, a, in, in, the, in the character of your mind. And you and I know you can't commit adultery and go to heaven. And so again, a man, and for that matter, in principle, the woman too would realize she's not going to lustfully look upon another man. She has been bound to this man because she gave her word both to him and to God that she would be faithful to him. Notice again, there's a big difference. Non-Christian spouses may again look very differently upon other men or women, thinking they can conceal or hide it from their spouse. But a Christian man or woman, you see, there's going to be a degree of comfort and freedom and absolute givenness one to the other. Let's add to that one more thing. You and I as Christians, and thus that Christian marriage, would appreciate a great liberty 
Didn't Paul say in Galatians 5 verse number 1, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. You see, in Jesus is when we have true freedom. Now, we know it's not the freedom to do what I want when I want. That's not what the Lord meant. It's the freedom to want to do what Jesus tells me to do. And in every case, that's always right. As we close that slide, our first point then has been this one. True happiness, lasting happiness in marriage will involve this Christian man and woman who have each given themselves to the law of God first. And in so doing, they seek to fulfill in themselves with promises toward their partner all that God has described. What else makes a Christian marriage different? May I suggest accountability? Accountability. Let me develop that point in the following way. You and I know that God has orchestrated the reality of the church. That is to say, a family which understands and appreciates the nature of what it's like to sojourn toward heaven. And they're there to exhort, to encourage each other. They're there to reprove one another when that's appropriate. May I say that there's an element of accountability in this. And you and I know it well. You and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ... We bear an element of accountability. If I see my brother or sister, one of you, stepping beyond the bounds of what's right in the sight of God, out of love and out of genuine concern for your soul, my goal ought to be to follow those things in Matthew 18, to speak to you first one-on-one. Do you realize what you're doing? Don't you understand this verse? And in kindness and in love and in tactfulness, bring that to your attention. You might at that point make changes and everything's grand. If you don't, I of course should proceed further. Ultimately realizing in the final analysis, take a witness or two and again discuss this matter. And if your person won't hear it, bring it to the church. And then if you don't hear it still, withdraw fellowship. As all of that's done, notice there's an accountability. Isn't that same thing true in principle in marriage? Now, that certainly is something that would not be present in a non-Christian marriage. When a husband and a wife, each one are faithful Christians, they want more than anything to see that spouse journeying to heaven. They want more than anything then to construct their home and their relationship in that family in such a way that is pleasing unto God. Now, obviously, the standard for the determination of this accountability is the Bible. It's what God says. All Scripture is given inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works." But aside from the notion of that standard, look at some applications. I've listed just some basic, very brief matters. And you could develop many others, no doubt, but here perhaps are are a few. Maybe there is a husband. Maybe three, four Wednesday nights in a row. He works late, not able to make the services, he says. And in a very strong note of love and kindness, his wife finally says to him, Honey, I appreciate the fact you provide for us. 
I appreciate your determination to ensure that we have all that we need in a physical standpoint. But I am a bit troubled. You've now missed three Wednesday nights in a row. You've missed these Bible studies. Do you really need those overtime hours? We're making it fine. I think you'd be much better to give some thought, where's your priority here? Are you having to miss or are you just choosing to miss the services? Now, what's that woman doing? She's trying to, in, in the matter of accountability, ask her husband. She wants him to journey correctly through this life. Now, that's not the time for him to get mad at her. It's the time in earnestness and honesty to discuss this matter. She might be right. And if she is, he needs to just refuse the overtime hours. What about another example? Suppose there comes a time the husband says to his wife, Honey, I really like that dress you're wearing. I don't think you ought to wear it like that. I like it much too much. And it makes me think about you in a way that no other man needs to be thinking about you that way. Now again, that's not the time for her to get mad at him. It's the time for her to love him and to appreciate that if those thoughts are crossing his mind, then they likely are crossing some other man's mind and she needs to either change that dress or cover it up with something. Notice these two are being accountable in that they're helping each other to get to heaven. You're not likely to find that in a non-Christian marriage because again, the foundation of the Bible is not there. This accountability maybe reminds us of Amos 3, verse 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Each one is attempting to appreciate the matter of encouraging accountability in the life of the spouse. What else besides these two would be a vital distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian marriage? A shared direction. Now this again is very important, isn't it? This husband and this wife, they've been bound, of course, by God. But as they walk through life, that marriage will be so strong when there's an agreement between them, when they walk together, when you can tell they're not pulling differently. Well, to walk together, that shared direction is such a special thing. I've listed several verses for you to consider in light of this. Let's begin by highlighting the notion of faith. But without faith is it possible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Hebrews eleven six, A diligent seeking of God. It's a delightful thing when a family, a husband and a wife, can expressly feel and appreciate that shared character. I'm sure you've known of individuals who, though they were married, no doubt about that, there wasn't that degree of sharing because they didn't support one another in a religious way. One went to one congregation, one went to a different one, or maybe one went and the other one didn't go at all. Or maybe neither one of them go, and you can tell there is a disjointness. There is a disconnectedness in the ultimate mission of what they stand for. One of the things that becomes apparent through life is the meaning of life is not found in work. Now, I realize we devote 40, 50, or more hours a week to it, but the meaning in life is not in work. Jesus said that, right, in Luke 12, 15, Beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. 
And so when there's a husband and a wife who each are grounded in this book and who are determined to live in accordance to it and who want to encourage each other in that way, you find a strength, a connection. You find a discipline that a non-Christian marriage just doesn't have. It's a strength that truly is fantastic and it brings us back to the lesson text. I would ask you to notice, and maybe it seems confusing, in Ephesians 5, verses 22 and following, there's a discussion about wives and husbands. And we so often utilize that passage reminding us, Husbands, you're supposed to love your wife now. And wives, you're supposed to reverence your husband and submit to him. But you'll notice verse 32 says this, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. These points that Paul was making weren't primarily for the benefit of husbands and wives. He used it, although it is for that benefit, he used it to teach us the true nature between Jesus and His church. You and I are the bride of Christ. We love Him. We want to serve and please Him. We want to submit to Him. Paul says in a marriage it's that way too. Let's close that slide by noting this. Throughout the Bible, we find other examples of this. Two walking together. Aren't you reminded a bit about the scene of Abraham? You might remember Isaac was the son of promise. And when the time came that Isaac reached the point when he was ready to marry, his father Abraham took the initiative to help find a suitable bride for him. And did you notice where he found her? He commissioned his servant, you go back to my people. And of my people you find a, a woman who will be the kind of woman that Isaac needs to have for a wife. You see, we must be mighty cautious when we choose our spouse. The greatest decision no doubt we'll make on earth is whether to obey the gospel. But second to it, it's got to be this, the person I choose to marry. That person is going to have a great bearing on whether I'll go to heaven or not. That person is going to, throughout the course of life, have strong inclination about whether or not my mindset, my direction to God will be right. We'll say more about that in just a moment. But already, you can appreciate perhaps this passage. Amos 3.3 again says, If two walk together, surely they must be agreed. The fourth and final observation, and then we'll make some closing comments, is this one. One other avenue in which a Christian marriage is different is forgiveness. I suppose all of us would have perhaps thought of that one, but the Bible is so clearly that which points it out to us. Isn't it true that we must be people of forgiveness if we're going to please God? Jesus said, if you won't forgive your brother their trespasses, then God will not forgive you. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. And so therefore, you and I know that to please God, we must be individuals of forgiveness. We, in fact, must master it. But think about the application then in marriage. There's no doubt. Husbands and wives as human beings, we make our mistakes. You can ask Denise, I sure have my share of them. But the fact that we make mistakes brings us to note this. We as husbands and wives, in a Christian marriage, we ought to be great at forgiveness. We ought to be those who have learned to practice this. 
Whereas again, in a non-Christian marriage, they don't have the conviction of being forgiving people. And so in a Christian marriage, a husband and a wife, when that husband or wife says, Sweetheart, I'm sorry. What I said, you took it differently than what I intended. I'm genuinely sorry for that. I didn't mean it that way. And there ought to be forgiveness extended, and that matter ought to be put to rest. A non-Christian marriage might hold a grudge, might be mad for a pretty good amount of time, depending on what the situation was. In a Christian marriage, forgiveness is taught to us in verses perhaps like this. In Ephesians 4.32, we often, I suppose, use this to remind us about the church, but notice how it applies to marriage. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Now, we understand how that helps us appreciate the Christian family, but if your wife is a Christian, that applies to her in the same way it does to anybody else. Be kind and forgiving and tender-hearted and extend forgiveness just like Christ, just like God forgave you and me. Being a person of forgiveness, and it is a sweet thing in a Christian marriage to appreciate the reality of that forgiveness. I would ask you to note this passage. In Luke 17, 3, Jesus on that occasion said, If he repent, forgive him. And again, as Christians, we understand this. Maybe again, the world would not. I know the world might say that person has asked me to forgive them, but I'm not going to do it. A Christian mate will never feel that way. Because a Christian mate understands the premise that God is a forgiving God. How would you and I feel if when we approach God and beg Him to forgive us, He didn't do it? Well, we could never feel sure of our salvation if that's true. God loves to be a forgiving God when we meet His terms. And in a Christian marriage, that husband, that wife, looks forward really to being an individual who exhibits forgiveness. But you can easily see a non-Christian mate, a non-Christian marriage, in many cases might not feel that way. Perhaps one other verse. In Matthew 7 verse 12, the highest ethic that you and I see anywhere in the New Testament. How direct, how powerful. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do you even so unto them. For this is the law and the prophets. And again, in a Christian marriage, one realizes if the roles were reversed, I would wish that she'd forgive me. And therefore, now that she has asked me to forgive her, how can I help but do it? Isn't that what that verse, among other things, teaches? Four things different then between a non-Christian marriage and a Christian one. I would use all of those as the foundation to conclude the lesson with this insistence. If you have a Christian marriage, be thankful for it. Praise God for it. Be thankful for that mate that you can walk together with through this life. Don't ever take that marriage for granted. But by the same token, if you're one day looking forward to being married, I hope this lesson has highlighted in your thinking a non-Christian marriage is not the same. Find you a Christian mate. 
a man or a woman who loves God the way that you do and who more than anything else wants to go to heaven and help you get there. Because you'll notice these four things are different between a Christian marriage and an unchristian one. And again, once you have made those vows, you can't change it. You're in that marriage till death do us part. And therefore, the distinction must be noted now and highlighted in our way of thinking. You'll notice then... 1 Corinthians 7.39, among other verses, reminds us the wise thing to do is to find someone who will submit to God. Because if they'll submit to God, that means all of these things we've learned today will be characteristic of them, and it should be a delight then to be that person's spouse. Today, if again you have a Christian marriage, be so thankful for it. Appreciate that that's what God intended. And again, if you're looking forward one day to being a spouse, choose you somebody, that person who is a Christian and who will journey with you to heaven. Today, if we could be of help to anybody, ask yourself, am I a faithful Christian? Because that will be the bedrock that will be necessary in order for your marriage to be as it ought to be. Jesus said, "'Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That text in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 is, of course, a great invitation. Are you ready to come today? If you've never become a Christian, why not now? A song of encouragement has been chosen, and we're going to stand together in a moment and sing it. And all of us are going to encourage one another in the singing of it. If you need to come forward... Realize it's not an insult. It's a time, in fact, to make it right with God. If you have walked away from the faith, though once faithful, come back to your first love. Make confession of the errors if they're of a public nature. Upon your repentance and confession, God will forgive. This very day, if there's anybody in this audience who would wish to make a public response to the gospel's call of invitation, do it today, do it now, while together we stand and while we sing.